This is Unforgettable Learning, where we talk to L&D visionaries, experts, and mavericks about performance, creativity, and tech. Subscribe to stay in touch. Julie, it's so lovely to see you. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, I, Thank I, I you was, for having me. Yeah. No, it's absolutely a pleasure. And it's really funny because I was doing just a little bit of research into kind of what role you have and you say instructional designer to me you're like learning royalty it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't cover all of the things I think of when we think of Julie Dirksen you know you're an author you do these great courses you've been working in this field for so long and um yeah I mean do you how do you describe yourself do you say instructional I, designer or <laughs> now I want to put learning royalty as my like LinkedIn you can have that. Or something. So that, <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, yeah, I usually use learning strategist as kind of a, a, a job title such as it is. Um, I've been recently questioning whether or not um, I see people, you know, because I'm, I'm independent. And so, you know, I have my own company and things like that. And I see people when they are independents listing themselves as like chief learning officer. Yeah, right. like. <laughs> I'm like, should I be doing that? Would that be a, would that be shinier? I don't the chief know. Of, the chief of one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, so it's been it's been one of those uh, question marks. Is what's a good, you know? I, I've sort of been continuing to identify as an instructional designer, partially because I have a certain amount of loyalty to that job title, uh, especially in the wonderful world of learning experience design that has come up, which is an interesting one because I feel like I've been trying to champion the inclusion of things, you know, design practices from domains like user experience for, I don't know, 20 plus years. Um, my company name is Usable Learning, which comes from usability and user testing and all of that kind of things that were the forerunners for experience design. Um, so I, despite being an enormous you know, proponent of um, incorporating a lot of those practices into our work, I have been slightly resistant about switching over to an, being an LXD because I... I'm in favor of it if it's if the change is accompanied with changes to our practice. So like spending more time understanding your users or testing um, solution, you know, like prototyping and testing solutions with the users and, you know, some of those kinds of practices that I think are fundamental to that kind of design framework. But if it's just like changing the name, then I'm like, eh. <laughs> so. My first question I wanted to ask you about Talk to the Elephant is... Why did you write it? So the story has to do with condoms. Um, and it's, it's <laughs> I right was not first... expecting that. <laughs> no, no, I know. Um, I, actually, it was a project that I was attached to. My first kind of like inkling of interest in this particular topic was a project that I was attached to in like the mid 2000s. Um, and it was an AIDS and HIV prevention project. And, you know, it was... Um, an in-person intervention that they were doing through the University of Minnesota and there's some other affiliated organizations on this research project. Um, but they were looking at, um, you know, like this was still relatively early days for, you know, the massiveness of the internet because um, this is almost 20 years ago now. Uh, the uh, But they were just looking at taking some in-person interventions that they'd done and, and kind of trying to figure out what that would look like in an online digital world. And this is sort of pre-social media. So it was, um, or at least the, the really big rise of social media. Um, and so, you know, they were trying to figure out what that was. And I was, you know, I was in this, I was attached to this project as an instructional designer and I'm like, okay, but you know, the, this isn't, 
an information problem anymore because like by the mid 2000s, we understood the mechanisms and everybody had pretty much gotten the message about um, condom usage to prevent AIDS, this, you know, spread the prevent the spread of AIDS and HIV. And now, of course, the um, that environment has changed and there's a whole lot more tools in the in the toolbox on it. But um, the I was like, it's not an information problem where like, you know, people know they know. And yet some of these behaviors are still happening, even when people know, quote unquote, the right thing to do. And um, so all of my little educational psychology tools about informing or developing skills or, you know, helping people remember things. I'm like, those aren't relevant in this case. And it was really this case of feeling like I, I, I think I should have other tools in my toolbox. Um, and the researchers had things and, you know, we kind of made use of it. But then as I sort of went along, I started to see some things that were really interesting. And so in like 2008, 2010, we had kind of the first inkling of some of the behavioral economic stuff becoming widespread. So like Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow or Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein's Nudge. Um, and, you know, um, a few of those things haven't held up entirely. Um, you know, some of the some of the things that they've written about in those books haven't held up. But the the general idea that there are like things we can do as designers to better support the behaviors that we're trying to help people with um, has absolutely held up. And then that has started to kind of coalesce into its own discipline around behavioral science and behavioral design. Um, and I really felt like not enough of the insights that were coming out of that space were making their way back over to learning and development. Um, and so that's the, that's the impetus behind, you know, me spending, I don't know, the better part of a decade trying to understand this stuff as well as possible. Um, in kind of the mid teens, I've, bumped into um, Combi and the Behavior Change Wheel, which is research out of the University College London's Center for Behavior Change and Susan Mickey and her team there um, and her colleagues uh, that is was a nice model. And there's other ones. There's BJ Fogg stuff, there's the Behavioral Insights team in the UK, and there, you know, and there's a bunch of models and frameworks. Kind of had to pick one to focus on because otherwise you get a little lost in too many options. Um, uh, so I lean into com to combi and that kind of thing, but but yeah, basically it was like I think there are a whole bunch of other tools we should have in our instructional design toolbox, and how do I help people kind of add these into the mix? Yeah, I appreciate that service that you've done because <laughs> I probably spent, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago when I first heard about BJ Fogg and what they were doing over at Stanford, I was like, I need to go. And at the time he was running this like weekend sort of workshop and I'm in yeah. the UK, this guy's in California and I was like, God, it's like $3,000. I don't actually know if this is a cult. Like maybe this is not what I think it is and I'm going to get myself involved in something I shouldn't be. So I never did it, but I followed it along and I was, uh, I love what you're saying because I've always found it a bit of a struggle to sort of interpret all these models out there and then apply them to learning design. And it feels like you're trying to bridge the gap and, and, and uh, you know, successfully doing so, I think, with, with, this, with this book. So um that's very exciting and very much needed, I think. Um, and it follows on from your previous book, Design for How People Learn. And I just wondered if you could just briefly tell us how you would describe the difference uh, between these two books. 
Yeah. So design for how people learn, I, the sort of the way that I described the the audience or the problem that I was trying to solve with that book was so many people come into some kind of teaching through domain knowledge. They know a lot about their topic. And so they become the logical person to teach it to other people. And it's the, hey, you're a good customer service rep. We're going to let you train the other customer service reps or whatever. You know, hey, you're a good, you know, such like Python programmer. We want you to teach a Python programming class. It could be any topic. And, um, and that those people, you know, did have this fantastic wealth of knowledge, but not very much in terms of like basic understanding of how do I how do I create an effective learning experience or how do I teach that to others. So many people wind up in the field for this, you know, in this in this capacity one way or another, and sort of that accidental instructional designer role, which is you know the title of Cami Bean's great book on this topic and things like that. And so um, with that book, it was about kind of a getting a foundational understanding of like trying to understand the underpinnings well enough that you could make good choices and make good decisions when you were putting together curriculum and kind of thinking about things. Um, And in that book, chapter eight really focused in on, like I was looking at, you know, what's the gap between where the learner is now and where you want them to be? Is it just, if you insert knowledge into that gap and they know a thing, will they Will they be able to do it? Is it about procedures? And is it about skills where they need to practice? Is it about habits where they need to remember to do it in the in the flow of busy life? Is it about, um, sometimes it's uh, really more about the environment, like fix the environment or put resources in the right places to support performance. Um, but one of the things is always looking at, is it a motivation gap? And the way that you know it's motivation gap is they know how to do it, but they're still not doing it. Um, or they know what not to do, and they still are doing it. <laughs> it could be the yes. other way. Um, and so I had a chapter in there where I was using like the rider and elephant metaphor, which comes from a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And uh, it's this idea that, you know, we have these sort of dual decision makers. We have a rider who's kind of logical, your verbal conscious thinking brain, plans for the future, controls impulses, um, logic, reasoning, all of that kind of fun stuff. And then you have the elephant, which is your visceral emotional feeling brain, which is, you know, has to do with like, what's going on with me right now? What's my, you know, um, do I have an immediate need for this? Is this something that I can taste, touch, feel, sense? Is it something that I have strong feelings about? You know, and and we have historically, especially in kind of Western culture, sort of devalued that that system and kind of, you know, um, uh, per, you know, like prefer the rational thinking brain. But almost all of these behavior change challenges that we see happen in environments where your logical knowledge is at war with, not at war, um, your logical knowledge is opposed to what your actual experience, your physical you know, kind of lived experiences. Um, and I just used an example of this in a presentation I did a couple of weeks ago where um, I was talking about uh, like virtual reality environments. And, um, and if you've ever seen this one, there's lots of videos online of it um, where they go, you put on the VR goggles and you go into a little elevator at street level and then you go up and up and up and up. And then, and then it opens on like the 30th floor somewhere and the, the elevator opens to the outside and there's just a little plank that in front of you and the, it's a the point plank. of this, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I and, haven't uh, done it. I still haven't done it. I don't have the courage. <laughs> I know, right? And you know, so you're supposed to walk out on this little plank. And I've done this one, and I could not do it if I had looked at it. Yeah, like if I looked up, I could 
make myself walk forward because I could kind of disassociate the two things. But if I was actually looking down at, you know, like the street 30 Mm -hmm. floors below and stuff like that, I couldn't make myself walk forward. And that's a case where my intellectual knowledge of I am in a carpeted conference room and I am perfectly safe was at war with what my physical senses were telling me, which is scary, 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 right? Heights, high, high, high. (laughs) Um, And we think... We like to believe that our rider is always in control, but really the elephant makes a lot of decisions. And one of the things that tends to happen in a lot of training curriculum design is it tends to be all rider. I'm going to make the logical Mm -hmm. argument. I'm going to explain it, but I'm going to use a lot of abstractions and I'm going to use a lot of words, but not a lot of images or, you know, things like that. And your elephant is kind of like getting a message that this is boring (laughs) and not interesting and shouldn't we just go check Instagram instead? And um, and so as long as we're causing those two entities, you know, we're relying on the rider to drag the elephant along, we're making it harder for our learners, and we're also not getting the results that we would like to get. Yeah. Um, and so that's yeah. the, the title of the new book is Talk to the Elephant. Yeah. And it, so it's all of the things that the elephant kind of cares about um, and how do you leverage, you know, much more of that in the training that you design. And some of it, you know, some of it is not small stuff, but some of mm-hmm. it is actually not also not that hard. You know, like just even the language you use or the way that you talk about certain things can make a difference in terms of whether people connect to it and whether people feel like, you know, they're being talked to instead of at um, or talked with instead of to or, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, and so, you know, and marketers understand this really well. Like they're very good at talking to the elephant and um, the, uh, you know, and we're frequently really bad at it. And um, one of the interviews that I really liked in the book was one with Christian Hunt, who is the author of a book called Humanizing Rules. And he does a lot of work in compliance and is trying to be apply some of what of a behavioral lens to the, to compliance stuff. And he was talking about how when we constantly put people through like the compliance training, that isn't really relevant to what they do and isn't, you know, doesn't feel useful and things like that. What we're doing is we're training people to ignore the training that we're giving them. And so actually building a muscle of how to ignore training as you take it. And I think that that's not hard to see why that might not be really like the best choice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really want to train people people to ignore the stuff that we're producing. Um, So yeah, so that's, that's how that all comes together. No, well, thank you for explaining that metaphor of the elephant because um, I, I, that's super helpful for people to understand that there's those two different thinking modes. And um, this book is all em- about emphasizing the the part of us that is actually, you know, making decisions when we may think it's our rational side, but actually there's another whole part of us that's uh, being influenced and influencing the behaviors that we do. So um, really important. I wanted to talk to you about change. And, okay. uh, you know, there's, there's, it's, it, there are so, we could unpack this and talk about it all day because, you know, learning, design, behavior and change, we, we can't tackle it all. But let's, let's talk about change a little bit because you mention and acknowledge that it's a process and not an event. And you talk about some stages of change, which is funny that you mentioned marketing because, when you listed out these sort of stages of change, consider and planning and making the change and maintaining, it reminded me of, you know, in in marketing, when you have sort of like um, the, the, the funnel of purchasing, you know, where people are considering a purchase and then doing their research and mm, then they're committed yeah, yeah. to the, 
you know, and it was it was a, it was a sort of an interesting um, moment for me because we've known about these kinds of processes for a long time, but applied to learning and and uh, or where learning may fit in with change. I thought that that was well defined, and but you also introduce um, a change ladder, yeah. and I wondered if you could just could you just tell us a bit about that and how it served you and how it might serve designers when they're thinking about sort of behaviour change. Yeah, and I think it is very analogous to, you know, things like marketing funnels or, or things like that. Um, uh, the change ladder came about from, I, I first kind of encountered um, uh, pieces of it from research that was done. Robert West at UCL uh, did some of it. Claire Stevens, a few other people had been using these as a way to try to target um, messaging around certain behaviors. And I think, don't quote me on this, I'd have to go back and double check, but I think it was like smoking cessation, maybe alcohol use. Um, and um, uh, I want to say text, I want to say I saw some examples where they were using it for texting while driving. Um, but this sort of ladder of, um, uh, and and they would refer to it as a risk assessment ladder. And what I did is I kind of took what they had used and kind of made a more general version that wasn't specific to the domains because they had their their questions were specific to things like alcohol yes. or smoking or whatever. Sure. Um, I did I did run it by Robert West and he thought it was cool, so I, I at least have that <laughs> much of an endorsement. But um, uh, the um, uh, it's this idea that like where are they in kind of in kind of a process? And not everybody goes through every stage. Um, there's other stage models of change, like the trans theoretical model, um, which is uh, Prochaska and Di Clemente, where they do talk about pre-contemplation, contemplation, planning, um, action, maintenance, uh, and possibly like extinction at the or expiration at the end of it. Um, if you know if you're done with it, potentially. But um, this one's more like ten steps, and it's like, do they not? Is the issue that they don't know about the behavior at all? So let's say the behavior is. Um, Oh, uh, you know, creating safe cyber security passwords, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, like creating good, strong passwords when you create an account someplace. So if we're looking at that behavior, do they not know about the behavior? Um, in which case, uh, it is an education function and you need to learn what's a safe password and why you need to use, you know, unique passwords with different accounts and things like that. Is it that they know about the behavior, but they're not convinced? Like I've been using the same, you know, my dog in my second grade, you know, like zip code for years. And why isn't that a perfectly good, you know, and I've never had a problem. Um, is it that they are convinced, but they just aren't willing to prioritize it? Like, yeah, I know I should, I should, I should, whatever. Um, is it that they're kind of ready to prioritize it, but they're not sure how to get started? You know, like, I don't know, how do I track all this stuff and what do I need to do? Is it that they feel like they're not doing it right or they feel a certain degree of, um, uh, you know, not like not secure about the behavior, which maybe there's maybe a scenario in the password one, but not all of these will apply to every single situation either. Um, is it that they literally are like on it, ready to go, and they just need a little bit of practical help with it? Um, is it that they have been doing the behavior, but now it's starting to fall off? Is it that, um, or that they've started the behavior and it's not consistent, or that they have been doing the behavior, but now it's starting to fall off? You know, the, all of these kinds of things. And so as you move through that continuum, um, training or education are the right answer at certain points in that whole journey, but they're not 
the whole solution. You know, it might be about social support or it might be honestly just the practical support of helping them set up a password manager, or it might be about, you know, kind of doing little refresh reminders as the behavior starts to erode of why this is important. It might be, you know, there's a whole slew of solutions in the cybersecurity space to try to help people with these things. Um, But we, it's really useful to know where your audience is um, along, you know, this sort of ladder of things. And like I said, some people skip over steps or not all steps apply to all, in all scenarios. Um, but if you don't understand where your audience is, you're stuck like explaining it to them again, louder and more emphatically. And they're like, I get it. I just, you know, that's there are not so the many problem. other reasons why yeah. I'm not applying it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally understand that. That's thank you for explaining that. Do, you also mentioned that defining behaviors isn't so easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can you expand you know, on that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no perfect example of what the what the kind of the level of resolution for a behavior is. It's a little bit like learning objectives too, where it's like what's the right granularity for something. Um, but uh Often one of the struggles that we have is not well-defining the behaviors up front. So we'll get in a mandate for customer service training and we want to, we want everybody to be passionately customer focused. Well, you know, what, what does that actually translate into in terms of behaviors if you're passionately customer focused? And some things will always be a little bit intangible or a little bit tacit. And that doesn't mean that they're not still valuable, but the more that you can define those behaviors. And so I always have a I have the um, photo question, which is if you took a photo or a video of somebody being customer focused, what would you be taking a photo or video of? And if, you know, and I'll use that question with like stakeholders or subject matter experts, and that can sometimes help them go, oh, okay, well, you know, they, they are greeting the customer when they come in the store and they're, um, you know, calling around if they want, if they need a different size or they're checking in to make sure, or they're leaving some people alone when they want to be left alone, you know, like whatever those behaviors are, because you can't operate at this high level and be specific in about why is it not happening and what, you know, what, how do we support it unless you really are getting to that behavioral level. Now, the challenge with that is that sometimes getting really down in the weeds at the behavioral level can obscure some bigger questions. So for example, if I'm deeply, deeply focused on the behavior of getting people to sort their recycling correctly, um, you know, and having them not throw um, the wrong kinds of plastics in the bin or something like that. That's great. But maybe the real problem is we need better regulation of plastic manufacturing to not produce plastics that aren't recyclable. And that that's where we should be putting more of our energy than trying to convince everybody to sort them correctly. You know, so, um, so it's important to kind of to kind of look at all the levels. So like the individual behavior, if I'm standing there holding my yogurt container and trying to decide if I can throw it in the recycling bin, yes, that is absolutely a behavior that's tied into this whole world. But at the same time, we may need to go up a couple of tiers, you know, and make sure that we're not losing sight of. And guess what? It would be way better to incent this at the manufacturing level than to incent this at the consumer, you know, dispo- you know the, the level of consumer um, you know, consumer waste. So. I've often um, thought that about uh, sort of 
sometimes product training, often software training. I'm often kind of like, oh, this is good. We do need to know how to use it. And wait a minute, if it was more intuitive, perhaps we wouldn't (laughs) need this training at all. And so perhaps we should go back and look at our UI. But that's, you know, that's not for us to to kind of say. I have had that thought many, uh, many times. (laughs) I have specific examples, in fact. Okay. No, no, I I 100%. Well, that's an interesting Um, one. I did a, I did a, podcast a few weeks ago with a, um, a user experience group. And I was explaining that exact thing, which is depending on where the intelligence lives to support performance, if we need it to be in like in the user's head or, you know, something that we're expecting them to do, we call that training or learning and development or performance support. And then if it needs to be in the system, we call that user experience design or user interface design or something like that. And we all have the same goal, which is we want the right thing to happen at kind of the right time. But we tend to like, if it's on this side of things, it's this group. And it's on this side of the things, it's this group. And wouldn't it be great if we talked to each other more? Yeah. <laughs> we coordinated our efforts. <laughs> wouldn't that be great? So um, you touched on this at the beginning, and we, we started sort of tapping into behavior from change. Uh, tell me, Combi, we know it, but I would love for you to just give us your overview of Combi and, and why you find it valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a few things that are there, but maybe not consistently. Um, but that's only because I've spent now a ridiculous <laughs> amount of time hanging out a with true it. expert. Um, yeah. Um, but the 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 top level, the combi is capability, opportunity, and motivation. So capability is: do people have the psychological and physical capability to do the task? And if they don't, then it might be training, it might be um, you know some education function, something like that. Uh, and within capability, we look at things like the psychological capability. So we were talking about attention at the beginning of this, and so the ability to stay focused and pay attention to something is absolutely a capability, and it may or may not be a trainable one or practically trainable for people. So, you know, it might be something where if like they don't have it, you kind of ask, okay, is this the right person for this role? If, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but then with an opportunity, we look at social opportunity and physical opportunity. So social opportunity is this supported by my social environment are the people in my immediate framework. And it could be your, you know, it could be your um, team at work. It could be your family. If it's a personal behavior change, you know, all of those kinds of things. Am I, you know, and that gets into things like, am I seeing this behavior modeled by, um, uh, you know, senior people, things like that. I was talking to, a friend a while back and she was saying, you know, that uh, she works at a social services organization and she's saying, you know, we'll get people, we get these young people and they get buried because they get so overwhelmed with the work and it would be way better for them to like put the flag up and be like, Hey, I think I need some help early on. And she's like, I don't know why they don't do that. And I'm like, Oh, do they ever see senior people do that? And she's like, no. And I'm like, Oh, well, that might be something you want to think about. Like if senior people are modeling the behavior that it's not okay to ask for help, or that at least modeling the behavior that you don't ask for help, then you know, you're going to struggle. But if they do model that behavior, then that's going to communicate to the, you know, the more junior staff that like, no, it is actually okay. Look, somebody, you know, who is super competent just did it. Now it's okay. And so when we look at... That fits into the opportunity piece, did you say? Yeah, that goes into the social opportunity. It crosses over with motivation. I mean, there's, you know, these things aren't totally discreet. Um, It goes into what are the social norms around you Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so if if the implied social norms are it's not okay to ask for help, then, you know. The opportunity is not there for you to ask for help. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, you probably put the actual like staging the modeling as a motivation strategy, but it it all yeah. these aren't you know like I said they aren't. It's a helpful <laughs> way <perhaps>. in. <laughs> yeah, these are these aren't discrete yeah. categories necessarily. Um, physical opportunity is things like does the computer system make it easy to do, or do you have the right equipment, or do you have the right resources, or are you given the time to do the thing? Um, and then motivation we look at automatic motivation and reflective motivation. So reflective motivation is the kind of motivation that we can kind of talk about and reflect on. It's, oh, what are my stated goals for this? Do I consider this to be part of my responsibility? Is am I is my identity aligned with this? Are my values and you know aligned with this? Those kinds of things. Um, and then uh, automatic motivation is all that autopilot stuff, habits, biases, feelings, things that kind of run without necessarily always breaking the the surface of, you know, kind of conscious awareness and, and things like that. And so, if we use that as a framework to understand and analyze a particular problem, then some things usually start to pop out at that point that we maybe didn't consider. And then um, what Susan and her group have done has really been to map those across to different kinds of intervention domains. And then they had created initially this library that was the behavior change technique taxonomy, the BCT taxonomy, um, which has like 93 different uh, interventions derived from the research literature around strategies that they've used in behavior change. And um, it's pretty, it's pretty academic-y and, you know, kind of dense. And I did my best in, uh, in the book to kind of make it less scary and intimidating. Yes, you cut it down from 93 to about 20, I think. And I was uh, impressed with uh, yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's definitely less. I think it was more than 20. But, um, but you know, um, I spread it out over four chapters and had a case study associated with each chapter and things like that. Yeah, the BCTs are in like, I think it's 9 through 12 or something like that. And um, uh, in trying to like you know, kind of help people with it. And and one of the things that I think is important is that we're not, I'm not necessarily proposing an alternative to people's current design um, process, but something that you can kind of layer in as, as, you know, as needed or as appropriate. So. Yeah. Well, um, one of the examples that you gave in the book is around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you mentioned that actually what you see sometimes people showing up with are not behaviors, but attitudes and beliefs. Yeah. And I thought, ooh, that's a really brilliant and very common tangible example. So could you just talk about that specific example for a minute and what actual behavior, a behavior that's observable, like you say, with the camera, with the film, you know, crew would look like for DE and I. So what is, what are the things that are not, not so well-defined behaviors or inaccurate behaviors? And then what are the things that are good behaviors? Right. Um, it's an interesting one because when I've, and I, I am absolutely not a, a DEI expert, so full disclaimer on that. Um, uh, and I, I 100% bow to the people who have real expertise in this. But one of the things that I do see frequently is that it's not, you know, I, I've worked on a lot of, you know, uh, diversity training or things like that over the years where it's about like, hey, look, a more diverse team helps us all and stuff like that. But when it actually comes into, okay, how do I, how do I act on this? Then the question of, well, what is it that I'm actually supposed to do? Um, and part of the challenge with that one is we actually have a real interesting variety of audiences. So I was working on some stuff that was for managers around 
um, it was managers and employees around um, uh, prevention of harassment. So probably specifically sexual harassment, but really any kind of harassment. And, you know, within that audience, we have like five different kinds of things. We have the people who are doing it and know that they're doing it and don't care. Right. Um, so somebody who's, you know, demanding, um, uh, you know, harassing, uh, their employees for, uh, you know, like, oh, you want a good shift? Well, you're going to have to make it worth my while, whatever, whatever, right? So like an actual quid pro quo harassment or something like that. And that person is not somebody that we're going to like persuade to be nicer, probably, you know, that's a, that's a job for enforcement. And so at a certain point, all we're trying to do is inform them of consequences and make it clear that there are, you know, that the, the organization takes it seriously and all this kind of stuff. Then there's the, um, they don't know that they're doing it. Um, and that might be the people who are making off-color jokes and genuinely don't know that this is not acceptable workplace behavior. And so then that's a different audience too, in terms of, hey, you know, what I want you to do is to think before you say certain things. Right. right. <laughs> um, which is an interesting one because you have to catch yourself in the moment and go, oh, should I say that out loud? No, maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, and they're not necessarily a malicious audience, but they are uh, still causing problems and, you know, by saying things that really aren't okay and are creating a problem for other people. Then there's the people who have been subject to some kind of harassment. Then there's the managers who are dealing with a harassment complaint. Um, and then there's the bystanders, right? And that's a really interesting category because ideally the person also standing in the kitchen while, you know, the person tells the, you know, in the break room kitchen while the, you know, the person from that second category that doesn't know that it's a bad behavior is telling a racist or off color joke or something like that, you know, like, what am I supposed to do in that circumstance? And that's a very fraught thing, right? Like you don't necessarily, like we, I think sometimes underplay a little bit, the degree to which speaking up in that moment has some lasting repercussions in terms of relationships. And, you know, it depends a lot on like the social hierarchy or the, you know, the power structure within an organization or a department, you know, all of those kinds of things. And so if that's the behavior we want, right, is somebody to say, hey, dude, that's not cool when something like this happens, you know, um, and is that the behavior or are we expecting them to report it to HR, right? Because um, those are two very different things, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's where that tight focus on behavior, okay, who's the audience for it? Which of these categories are we dealing with? And what are what do we actually expect them to do? Oh, you heard somebody tell a racist joke. You Should you talk to them? Should you talk to your manager? Should you report it to human resources? Um so what's the be actual, you know, if you hear this thing, what's the actual behavior we want you to do? Is it realistic, um, you know, given all of these environmental factors that are going on? And if it is realistic, you know, there isn't such a power, you know, power hierarchy that you're cursing yourself forever um, by saying something, how do we want you to handle it, right? Like, what do we actually want you to do? And that's still going to be a super anxiety provoking activity. So we're going to want to make sure that you get the opportunity to practice doing it. So it's not as scary when you actually have to do it. Um, uh, so we look at a lot of different things when we're in those, because these are very complicated fraud spaces. It sounds like from what you're saying, there's this um, need for 
deeper specificity about the behaviours that we're actually trying to solve for amongst the categories or audience types that we're we're looking at, combined with an acknowledgement that there are broader complexities that may be at work that we may not be able to solve for with our learning interventions. Yeah. And I, I wonder, as an instructional designer, do you... You, you seem to understand that very clearly, and I wondered to what extent you tackle that. Do you raise it? Do you say, here's what I can achieve, you know, over here with the, the sort of intervention side, but these are some of the things that you guys are going to need to have a look at, and I'm not that person, but here's, here's a number of a McKinsey yeah, or absolutely. consultancy or something to deal with it. Um, I do think that's a huge part of the conversation because we've all been handed things where we're like, this, this is a training problem, really? Are you sure? You know, um, I, one of my favorite ones was years and years ago, we, and we didn't get this project. I was working for a consultancy and we got a project that we were going to bid on where they had a high level of employee turnover. So they wanted to create a program about the history of the company, the learning <laughs> course. And I'm like, do you, do you really think that, Is that the reason? Turnover? Yeah. You really think that if they understand, like the reason people are leaving is that they don't understand the history of the company. I'm, I'm. I'm Let's dig sure. in on that, shall we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and they they basically were like, no thanks. Um, but uh, <laughs> and they just um, wanted that, and they went ahead with that, right? I bet they did. I think they probably did. We've all seen and, it. And you know, like they may not have been completely wrong about like feeling a connection to Bought the company in and understanding yeah, the culture yeah, yeah. and that kind of um, stuff. All valuable. Yeah, yeah, could be useful. But the idea that those two things. That, you know, like high turnover rate could be fixed by understanding that, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm not saying that understanding the history of the company is a bad thing, but I don't think that that was going to fix a high turnover rate. Like right. I think there was some other stuff going yeah. on. <laughs> and um, uh, and so, you know, whenever you get those requests, it's really useful to kind of be able to isolate some things where you're like, a another favorite of mine was I was working with a multinational insurance company and they were talking about the fact that the data entry people who are entering these applications, and they're quite complex because they involve multiple countries' laws around insurance and stuff, um, were, they're like, they're not concerned about accuracy. Can we put something in the training about how important accuracy is? And I'm like, sure. Can you tell me how they're evaluated? And they're like, oh, number of applications they do per hour. <laughs> and I'm like, great. Do they get any feedback on their, <laughs> on their accuracy? And they're like, no, I don't think they do. And I'm like, okay. So we can absolutely put it in the training and I will mm -hmm. happily put a slide in there that says, hey, accuracy is super important. But you do see the problem, right? <laughs> So, um, <laughs> no, I mean, we're dealing with these kinds of nuances all the time, aren't we? And we, I guess, we're sort of uh, doing the best that we can. I have a couple more questions and, and then and then I'll let you carry on with your, your day. But one was maybe this is a stupid question. Um, do you ever see that there's training that isn't behavior related? Um, you know, I. It depends on where we where we're sort of drawing the line around behavior. Like I said, the behavioral uh, stuff that I'm usually talking about in this book, like my sort of off the cuff definition of when you really need to dig into a lot of this stuff is that they know what to do, but they still aren't doing it. Um, and so there's a whole slew of training that that doesn't fall into that category. You yeah. know, if you're so don't know what to do is yeah straight yeah up. you know like oh it's a new software system and you need to learn how to use it well you know 
we don't, I wouldn't get into all of this necessarily on that until we get to the point where it's like, well, they know how to act, enter the notes on the customer call and they're not doing it. And then we get into, you know, then we might dig into some of this sort of stuff. So I don't think you do this on everything. Like there's plenty of stuff where as long as people learn the thing, they'll probably do the thing and you're, you're good. Um, uh, but you know, any place where it feels like, Hey, we've been doing all this training and we're just not moving the needle on the behavior. That's where I, you know, that's where this stuff is potentially useful. And I'm thinking about that, especially because of kind of measurable results and impact and where you see kind of the change in an organization. You, it's going to be behavioral stuff that's going to lead to that, really, because you can't see the other things so much. So, Yeah. And I mean, the more mechanical, you know, like just, you know, put the um, do step one, step two, step three stuff, you know, we're going to be doing less and less of that work. Um, you know, that is the th- the part of our jobs where, you know, AI may um, kind of come into play. And I'm, I'm to a certain extent, I'm okay with that. Like I did a lot of software training early in my career. And when I could stop doing software training, I was really happy because it's it's so tedious. It's just real boring. Um, And I love me, you know, I love a a good chewy behavior change problem. That's way more interesting for me to work on. So if the AI is going to generate some of our software simulation stuff, like, I don't see how that's that's really a bad thing. (laughs) I don't know. It's probably fine. Um, That said, that means that the problems that are left over are going to be these harder ones that we need, you know, again, the sort of more... um, a more complete toolkit to yeah. to try to unpack and 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 work on. You see that in healthcare, like you know, surgeries, the surgical technology, the um, oh, genetic, you know, the genetic data, the medications, like all of that stuff has just come along amazingly, um, and we're solving so many problems. You know, uh, a friend of mine is on a, currently on a cancer drug that literally only became three months available, like three months before she was diagnosed, you know, so like, wow, literally, yeah. she'd had this a year earlier, her her whole trajectory would have with the disease would have been different. Um, and so as um, we're maturing, as as the world's maturing technology is taking over more and more parts of our jobs, the bits that are left over, you're saying are going to yeah. require us to have these, this behavioral understanding. Yeah, solve you know, the more complex things. <laughs> the really expensive things that are still hanging out in healthcare are things like lifestyle changes when somebody has a heart attack or taking your medication. You know, like we can give you a really great medication for your blood pressure, but you have to take it every day. Um, yeah, you know, or uh, you know, actually, actually, like doing the physical therapy exercises or stuff like that. And so these incredibly costly, there's these incredibly costly parts of healthcare that really rely on human behavior as a way to, um, you know, to help people with things or to fix certain, you know, conditions and things like that. And we'll be able to fix lots of stuff, you know, using the technology or using those kinds of advances, but we will always have, you know, these pesky human beings in the mix. <laughs> in, the, and, in the system. And, yeah. And so we, we need we need good ways to help support those people in, you know, behaviors uh, that can help them. I, I value that you've always kind of placed learners at the heart of everything that, that you're doing, <laughs> the work that you do. It's it's key to all of us as designers. Um, an obvious challenge I can see with that, I know we're sort of close on time, but is is doing that at scale. And, you know, we're often working with organizations with tens of thousands of employees. Yeah. A, a tip that you gave 
me years ago in a course uh, that I attended at DevLearn was um, you can just use kind of heuristics and small numbers. You don't need to survey, you know, 100,000 people to get a sense of what the issues are. Do you still think that's a good approach? And do you, you know, do, can we get a sense of what our audience needs through a handful of uh, user interviews? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's all sorts of stuff in like academic research literature about like statistically significant samples and all of those kinds of things. I think that that's pretty intimidating to the you know the sort of on the on the ground instructional designer in an organization. Um, the the tip that I usually hand out at that point is like, okay, can you go follow somebody around at their job for a day? You know, can you make that happen um, at a minimum? If you can't do anything else, can you go follow somebody around, it, you know, at their job and just shadow them for the day and hear about what their headaches are and, you know, ask them why they did a particular thing. And, you know, and it has the really wonderful uh, effect of being in their environments. So you understand what the constraints are and, you know, what they're dealing with and how much time they have for things and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I do think talking to, you know, small groups is better than not doing anything at all. Um, you know, are there better and better strategies for hopefully getting to kind of meaningful information from people. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, but, you know, even, but there are some bare minimum things that are absolutely better than, you know, none at all. Um, this, there's a whole thing that came up in user experience where Jacob Nielsen did some work in the nineties where he looked at kind of guerrilla uh, user testing, uh, usability testing and things like that. And he found that when they, within the first five to six users, they had gotten 80% of the main issues identified in an interface. And that if they kept going, you know, up to like 20 users or something, they got about 20% more, but it, none of them were the big issues. And so that freed up an enormous amount of kind of anxiety about how big do we need to test and how expensive does testing need to be and how many resources do we need to do testing? If we could get m enough information from five or six users um, to at least, it's not perfect. It's not, you know, it's not, you can't publish it in a research journal, but boy, it's a whole lot more than none. And um, so, yeah, if you can't, if you can't get, um, huge amounts of data from a large swath of your audience. I still think it's worth talking to, um, you know, talking to like a small group. There are cases where you're going to get like a self-selecting sample. And so you're only going to hear from people who are um, taking enough initiative to reach out to you when you put your uh, call for interviews out there, in which case now you're only talking to the self-starters and that's probably biasing your sample a little bit. So there are cases where that like small samples can lead you a little bit astray, but honestly, I'm way less worried about that problem than I am about the amount of stuff that gets built without talking to any users at all. Yeah, yeah, sounds sounds sensible. And um, okay, so we've we've talked a lot about the book. I I'm a big fan, and I'm hoping other people will be too. And I'm hoping you're getting really great feedback for it. While I have you here, I have one more question for you, which is what do you think are going to be the sort of trends we should be paying attention to in 2024? Oh, Lord. Um, I don't know. I'm, I've been, uh, I've been kind of avoiding talking about the AI stuff because I've been waiting for 
some of the hype cycle to to kind of die do. down. <laughs> yeah. Um and it's I don't I don't know if it ever will. Um at this point, I uh, it's an interesting thing because it's still so much in flux and we're going to be in flux for a while. Um so that's a really good question. Obviously the sort of role of data is going to be um increasingly an issue because we're getting access to more and more of it. Um Jane Bozarth from the Learning Guild just put a research report out on uh, ethics and trust around uh, data in organizations. Um, and so I think that some of that is, I don't know if, I don't know if I have, um, I know what I think we should be <laughs> focusing on. I don't know if it's what we will be focusing on. What do, um, what do you think we should be focusing on? <laughs> I, I do think one of the, um, so I will, I will venture a little bit forward with the AI. One of the things we've consistently heard around this AI is that, uh, that a big part of using any of these tools, like the large language model tools or anything like that is being able to judge the results well and, um, you know, evaluate whether or not they're, um, reliable and useful and things like that. And so I do think one of the things that we need to look at with organizations is that is a skill. That is not something we can automatically assume that people know how to do. Ju um, sorry, judge the results well from from what? From oh, like training intervention or, or something oh. like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, As okay. The AI so stuff the happens, from yeah. the from the AI, we need yeah. people who can sensibly evaluate what it's yeah. putting out. Right. Um, hmm. And yeah. so building building some skills around being able to evaluate outputs from these tools, which are going to become more ubiquitous, but keeping an eye on that that is an actual skill that needs to be developed and people need to practice it and they need to get feedback and they need to know if they're doing it right. And some of those kinds of things uh, is going to be I don't know if it's going to be an issue we focus on, but it's an issue we should focus on. So yeah, there's that. Okay, fantastic. Um, excellent. Is there anything else you would like to say that we haven't covered or to mention that we've not touched upon? Um. Oh boy. I I don't think so. I think we've I think we've hit on lots of the really interesting <laughs> stuff. So, um. Yeah. No. I I'm I'm really hopeful that this is something that that proves to be kind of useful for people in our field. And, uh, and so um, uh, I would say to anybody who's, you know, reading the book or, you know, listening and reading the book is I would love to hear uh, back from people about whether they found application for things uh, in their own practice. So super. And you should start a blog with their case studies and we can keep the conversation going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Um, excellent. Well, Julie, thank you. Uh, absolute pleasure to see you. Always wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. This has been a very fun conversation. I, thank you for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to stay up to date with Leading Lights from L&D and leave us a review to let us know what you think.